Okay, well, good morning, good morning. If you would have a seat, gather with us and open your Bibles. We are in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, the last sermon of Malachi. Yay! Um, We will begin um, next week. We'll have um, Pastor Randy, I believe, preaching. And then after that, we're going to begin the book of Matthew. And Matthew is going to be a long study and a glorious study. Matthew has the most teaching of Jesus in it, direct teaching, about 60% of it are the words of Jesus. And so it's going to be a very teaching-centric book. It's going to be awesome. Um, and so uh, we look forward to that. We will begin that in a couple weeks. But right now, we're finishing off Malachi. And so we go through every verse, and so we still got a couple left. So Matthew chapter 4, and verses 4 and 5, and we're going to have a whole sermon preached on those. It's going to be rad. All right, here we go. Malachi chapter 4. This is what God's Word says. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is God's word. This is the, uh, as I said, final sermon of Malachi, this little, heavy, hard hitting prophecy in a book that you may have never read before. These are the last three verses in this chapter. The last 72 words of this book and the last prophecy of the 12 last prophets of the Old Testament. And these are God's final words before a 400 year silence. He will say nothing. The little blank sheet of paper in between Matthew and Malachi represents 400 years. It's a long time not to hear from God. So the last things he says are probably pretty important before that silence. This is God's final warning before what he describes as the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And the book and these words are almost 2,400 years old. They're old. And it's easy for us to kind of be dismissive of such an old book, an old thing, and say, you know what, does this really have any significance to us? And so I would just offer up today this reminder that neither the faithfulness of God nor the unfaithfulness of men has changed. Those things both remain And so these words have meaning for you and I today. So let me give you a warning before I address God's warning. Listen to the Holy Spirit who spoke in Hebrews 3 saying this, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be any of you evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And I'm doing what it says here. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. 
if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. I'm going to pray because these last hard words are just that, hard to hear, and I desperately don't want you to allow the veil to be dropped over your heart and hear what God has to say today. So let me pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its power. I thank you for its ability to change us from the inside out, for its ability to heal us, Father. I pray that you will speak to us by your spirit. You will not allow the enemy to drop a veil over our hearts or our minds, that you will not allow our flesh to harden a heart that you want to soften. Let us hear, Father, the word today for us. Let us not think of others who need to hear it. Let us not think of a broken world that needs to hear it, but let us think of ourselves as those who need to hear your word. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So, as we've seen, I won't review the whole book for you. That's why we podcast it. Minus a fearful little remnant of people. Most of God's people have disregarded most of God's word. The majority of God's own people have dismissed, have denied, have begun to disbelieve God's word. And God's admonishment through this book, He has just laid it on the line. It is full of admonishment, full of this is what you are doing wrong. It's been strong. And He has said a lot about who they love and who they fear. He said a lot about how they worship. He said a lot about what they sacrifice. He has said a lot even to, to me about how you pastor, or to you parents perhaps, how you pastor. He said a lot about our marriages. He said a lot about giving and serving. All in this little four-chapter, seemingly obscure book. But all that God has said in this book is summarized in these three verses. When I first studied this, I wasn't really excited about the last two verses. This went all to the end. Last, like, well, I got this on. But as I sat in these, I saw this is actually what it's all about. See, God's people keep running from Him. Constantly running from Him. And God continues from the Garden of Eden all the way through Malachi and up through today to call to His people to return to Him. God doesn't give up. And He's calling all people to change. But He is especially, and in this book we see this, addressing those so Christians, those who call themselves Christians, those who claim the name of Jesus, those who say, Lord, Lord, I do for you, I do that for you. Specifically, those who make that claim and whom God says their confessions are actually fake, empty, and false. He's speaking to those of us who say, I'm a Christian. He's like, really? Let's see. He's challenged their 
so-called faith. And despite all their appearances that they think they have, all the religious practices they think that are impressing God, God has flat out told them, these so-called Christians, there's no mistaking what God's view is. He said, you are despising my name. You are profaning my table. You are dishonoring my sanctuary. Not only by what you give, but what you don't give. By how you love your wives or your husbands. I am not with you, he says, speaking to the Christians of the day. This book is much more for us than it is for the world. Much more for Christians to hear. And the scary thing is, and the thing that we want to do is argue with God like they did. Disagree with God. Well, I don't think you really know what real worship is, God. Haven't you seen the things I've done, God? Don't you know the things I've given you, God? That's what the people of Malachi have said. You must be wrong, God. And you'll notice that although they want to argue about what true obedience actually is, God of the universe is not really interested in much of a debate. Why? Because he's God. And because he is God, he is the one who decides what is right and what is wrong. God is the one who declares what is right worship and wrong worship. God is the one who defines what is right and wrong behavior. God is the one who dictates what is right and wrong relationships. God is the one who determines even what are right or wrong attitudes and perceptions. God defines and determines and dictates all those things. And so the beautiful thing of this book is that he begins, God does, with a declaration of love. And even though the last word is destruction in the Bible, book of Malachi, it's actually a declaration of love. It's a call to return to him. It's a call to repent. And what I said earlier several times that every call to repentance is an invitation to relationship. It's not just, stop it! It's return to me. Love me. Because I love you. So the first of the last things that God says here is to remember the law. It's the only place where it's said this way. To remember the law. Sounds very legalistic of God. The law of God, if you are unclear, came through a man named Moses. Now Moses, contrary to popular belief, was not a hero. Like all patriarchs and men in the Old Testament, they're all screwed up jack wagons. Okay, that's what they are. And so... Don't for a second start to idolize these guys because they are broken sinners whom God decided to use and write some incredible stories about. By stories, I mean their lives. But Moses was an 80-year-old adopted orphan turned fugitive, turned shepherd, turned mailman for God. That's who he was. A guy that argued with God about his ability to accomplish what God had asked him to do. He was a servant 
as the Bible says here, of the Lord who led God's people out of Egypt as he followed God's leading. And after crossing the Red Sea, which you are probably familiar with that story, God led them to the bottom of a mountain. Here it's called Horeb. Other places it's called Sinai. Same mountain. And this is where God, telling the people to stay below the mountain, His presence dwelt in the most amazing, destructive, scary, beautiful, horrible, terrifying, amazing, I want to be drawn to it way. People stay down there. Moses come up here and he gave the law to Moses. And God himself wrote it on tablets of stone with his finger. And though it's often called the law of Moses throughout Scripture when it's referencing these commandments, Moses didn't invent these commandments. Moses didn't even write them down himself. God did. So the first thing that he tells this people, God, to Malachi, the first thing he's telling these people is, read your Bibles. That's what he tells them. Go remember and read what Moses taught you, what I taught Moses and what he gave to you. Go read your Bible. Review the things that Moses told you in Deuteronomy 6 to teach your children, to put on your doorposts, to talk about when you went about life. Read those things. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, written by Moses, he reminds the people why they should do this, which kind of gives insight why God might be telling the people in Malachi's day to do this. In Deuteronomy 4, he said, Take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. What should we make known? How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the mountain, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words. You see, they heard it when the Ten Commandments were spoken, though they did not understand it. You can read the story yourself in Exodus 20. But that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to do what? To fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. What is the biggest problem with the people in Malachi's day? They do not fear the Lord. Why do they not fear the Lord? They have forgotten God. They have forgotten what God them, specifically these commandments. Now, God wants them to do much more than just recall the Ten Commandments. I would be hard-pressed to see how many of you could do that. It's amazing how much we argue for the Ten Commandments to be put up in courthouses, and very few of us have them posted in our homes. God expected them to do much more than just remember and recall in the literal sense. He wanted them to know His Word, to feast on His Word, to then act upon what they knew. It wasn't enough. Knowledge is never enough. So the Ten Commandments, you need to understand, were much more than just a list of 
do's and don'ts. God had rescued his people from slavery, and he had brought them out in order to do what? To make them really moral? No, to make them worshipers. And so, at the base of Mount Horeb, God gives them a description of what a worshiper is going to look like. And again, I ask you, do you know the Ten Commandments? I'll read them for you, so like you should write them down real quick. If not, they're in Exodus 20, so you could always look there. Just write down Exodus 20. Memorize. Okay? Commandment one. The most important. I'm going to paraphrase, but you could read it out of Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. Seems pretty simple. Commandment two, you shall not make yourself an image and not bow down to those images or serve them. Obviously speaking about idols. Commandment three, you shall not. Anyone? Take the Lord's name in vain. Interesting how much Malachi's people have despised his name and how many times God says that. Commandment four, thou shalt keep Sabbath. Commandment five, I bet you parents should know it. If not, you should know it. It should be tattooed on your arms and pasted on the walls and laid out in toothpaste on the mirrors of your kids' bathrooms. You shall honor your father and mother. Really? That's in there? Yes, it is. That's what I always tell my kids. It's not my rule. Take it up with God. Commandment six, you shall not murder. Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment eight, you shall not steal. Commandment nine, you shall not bear false witness or lie. And commandment ten, the one that we often forget, shall not covet. The one the rich young ruler forgot, interestingly enough. God's commandments are moral laws. Let's be clear. They are moral laws. They are moral rules. That's, we see that. But there's so much more than that. God gave His people the laws not only to remind them to worship the right God, but also to teach them how to worship Him rightly. See, simply behavior um, isn't enough. So there are actually three things that God wanted to remind them of as he's calling them to remember. And that is who God is, who we are, and what we're supposed to do. Who God is. They wanted to remember who God is. Well, who is God? God is holy. God wants them to understand what is going to be required for a relationship with a holy God. God's standard is high. And we hear, as we'll see this in Matthew when we through the Sermon on the Mount, but as Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount, he's the law which the Pharisees are celebrating that, well, we've not committed adultery. We've not committed murder. Check that box. I am holy. Rah, rah, me. Jesus says, hold on, turbo Christian. Perhaps you don't understand the law. And he blows it up huge. He says, you've broken the law if you've hated someone. You broke law, lusted after someone like, oh my goodness. 
everyone's done that exactly. You realize that the standard God has is impossibly high. Because God's holiness is impossible to measure. It's perfection. And so God wants them, by look back at the law. I want you to remember how holy I am. These guys who are coming with their scabby sacrifices and giving God a little bit, you don't realize how worthy I am. You don't realize how big and perfect I am. But he also wants to remember who we are. See, when we see that impossibly high state, that's what we nice. We're never going to make it. We're never going to make it. God actually wants us to remember how sinful we are. How broken we are. Blessed are the what? The poor in spirit. Those who know how empty they are. Those who acknowledge how sinful and broken they are. What causes us to do that? The law. The law shows us how messed up we are. The law shows us how broken they are. The law shows us how desperately in need of a Savior we are because no way I can ever, ever, ever meet that standard. God wants us to remember who we are. Malachi, if you kind of remember as you do this book, the people of Malachi break every single one of these commandments. Every single one. And every time we break any commandment, we always begin with the first two. We do not worship the one true God, and we worship some other one. Those commandments are always broken before you commit adultery. Those commandments are always broken before you covet something. They're always broken before you steal, before you hurt, before you dishonor any authorities. You have found some other God more important to serve. So God wants us to remember who we are. And we need to be reminded because our world is such that we don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to be told that we are insufficient. We don't want to be told that we're in any way broken. I'm not broken, I'm just different. We don't want to be told that we're rebellious. I'm not rebellious, I just, I'm just independent. Self-reliant. That's sin! but it leads you away from God. So he wants to say, don't forget who I am. I'm up here. You're down here. You're where? Way up there. You're way down there. And then he also wants us to remember what we must do. See, the commandments are largely relational in nature, but we don't often approach them that way. The first four, no other gods before me, don't take, we'll worship the one God, Make no other God. Don't take the name in vain. Rest. Enjoy the Sabbath. Those are all relational commands for God. Love God. Don't love idols. Love honoring my name. And love my stuff. My stuff. Right? Not your stuff. Sabbath is beautiful. It's rest, but it's also enjoyment. Of, I'm enjoying. What did God do on the seventh day? He needed to snooze. It wasn't like he was tired. Woo! Six days of the omnipotent, all powerful, eternal God working. I'm wiped out. Wrong. 
right? God said, boom, I'm going to stop and go, whoo, look at that. That's beautiful. I'm going to enjoy that. It's purely relational. We see the second six commandments, often called the second table, are also relational, but it's relation between others. We love authority. The authorities God's have put in our in our path or in our in our life. We love life. That's why we don't murder. Why is it wrong? Because God loves life. He's the giver of life. We protect life, born or unborn. You should not commit adultery. Why? Well, you can look at that negative. Don't do that. Or we love marriage. Marriage is beautiful. Marriage is a, is a projection and a declaration, a sermon about God's relationship to us. It's, we love marriage, not just hate adultery. We do hate adultery because we love marriage. Do not steal, right? Why do we rob? Why do we steal? Because I don't love my portion. Which is definitely related to the last commandment. We also don't bear false witness. Why? Because we love truth. Even truth that hurts. We see value in living in the light more in the darkness. We believe Jesus when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that life and truth go together. And then thou shalt not covet. Why? Because I love my neighbor. That's why. And I want my neighbor to love his husband. Her husband. Oh, that's bad. Welcome to the great Northwest that we live in, right? So God's commands are certainly these laws and rules, if you will. God has rules, but they are relational in nature. They are, if you love God, guess what? You obey God. And if you obey God, you end up loving others. God wants them to remember that he is not just a God out there, a boss out there with rules that you obey so that he will give you your raise or save you, but that he is a personal God that actually wants relationship. Not simply religion. Because that's what the people of Malachi have. They have all the religious stuff down, but no relationship. And it's not to say that the religious stuff is bad, especially if God's commanded it. But to say that religious stuff without relationship, without right motivation, without a heart that's actually understanding why you're doing it, and what you hope to, quote, get from it, it's sinful. So God gave his people the laws, not just to teach them to worship right, but also to teach them how to worship him rightly. And he wants us to remember who he is, who we are, and what we are to do, but Think about this, commanding them to remember God's law. Commanding them to say, remember my law is a call for them to remember that they must obey and, newsflash, a declaration that they can't. See that? I want you to remember the law. This is what you have to do. And you're not going to be able to do it. What does that do? It drives you somewhere. It makes you desperate for someone. 
Now, the next thing he says really helps us. Like, if we only had, if, if Malachi ended at verse 4, that's tough. But it does, and it ends with 5 and 6. So we have verse 5. And as some pastor said, I can't remember, Piper Keller, someone that, who's way smarter and, and older than me, said that the essence of the gospel is not to behave, but to behold. And I love verse 5, right? Remember the law, remember the law, remember the law, you sinner, and behold, look, look. See, God calls us to remember what he has written, but we need much more than just a good memory or excellent study habits. What we actually need is a preacher. We need someone in the spirit of Elijah. He says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Well, for those who have not been in Sunday school or for those who have just forgotten their Sunday school stories, you should ask yourself, Who's Elijah? What did he do? If he's coming, we should probably look for him. Elijah the prophet, he was a prophet, a guy. We don't know actually his background. We don't know his family. Some people in the Bible, like Moses, we know exactly where they were born and where they came out of. And some people haven't a clue. Elijah's one of the guys that just shows up. Shows up in 1 Kings 17. And it's during a time, I've gone through the history before, so I don't have time to do it now, but it's during the time when the kingdom of Israel is divided into Israel and Judah. Okay, Israel, Judah, south, Israel, north. It's a time after Solomon, so there's all kinds of kings that are rising and falling in both of these places. And most of them are really bad. Most of them are evil. Some get a few verses in the Bible, some get several chapters. Elijah's name means, my God is the Lord. What an awesome name. What's your name mean? My God is Lord. Okay, I now understand your perspective. Okay? So Elijah, the guy whose name means my God is Lord, is going to come. We first, as I said here, of him in 1 Kings 17 during the reign of a king named Ahab. Maybe you've heard of him. Ahab reigned in Israel for 22 years. 22 years. He was the son of an incredibly evil man named Omri, who the Bible records as having done more evil than all the previous kings combined. That was his dad. So, not to be outdone, Ahab succeeds in even becoming a bigger champion of evil. He marries a wicked woman named Jezebel, maybe you've heard of her, who quite possibly is more evil than he is, but he's the spokesperson for most things. And she, by her influence, encourages him to sponsor the worship to false gods. There goes the first commandment. And the second commandment. And the third commandment. And their new spirituality that they introduce into Israel, right? God's people, includes such awesome worship practices as prostitution, self-mutilation, 
and even the sacrifice of children. Yes, it's all in the Bible. A king of Israel. The people of God could not have lived in darker times. And this is what Elijah walks into. This is what God calls Elijah into. When the culture is most dark, when the culture is most broken, and I don't know about you, our culture is pretty jacked up. And as much as I love the Northwest, I love the rain, I love the, I don't want to live anywhere else, this is a spiritually dark place to live. We kind of get desensitized to it and and used to it a little bit. And it's not to say that Texas or somewhere like doesn't have its own sin. They just have a different flavor of it. Down south, you got the older brother prodigals, right? Up here, we're the younger brother prodigals, right? We're the prodigal kids going out and indulging everything and setting the standard for the nation. You want to know how to sin legally? Here's where to look, people, okay? That is the culture we live in. And this is the world that God raised up Elijah in. And the best way to summarize Elijah's ministry, though I'll go through a couple things, is that he confronted sin. He confronted disobedience in a very bold way. He didn't care about the approval of men. He only cared about the approval of God. He did not love sin. He loved righteousness. He didn't dance around the truth. He declared it without apology, without compromise, and without fear. He called men to repent. So let me give you three quick examples of, of, you can read this in in 1 Kings 17, all the way, that's almost the end of 1 Kings, into like the first couple chapters of 2 Kings. So you can see like five, six chapters of, of time of where Elijah's story is. Let me summarize it really quickly for you. The first time Elijah shows up is after Ahab had proved to be the most evil king that had risen thus far. And like the Israelites of Malachi's day, basically he began to despise God's name. I told you what he did. He introduced false worship, and so they are practicing all kinds of things, dishonoring God, honoring idols, and basically bringing sin into the nation. And so it says in 1 Kings 16, and I'll read into 17.1, In the 38th year of Asa the king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethel, king of the Sidonians, which was sinful, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Okay? Elijah shows up in 17.1. It says, Elijah, the Tishbite, was told. 17.1 says, Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, so God just says, go tell him this. Never hear about Elijah before then. Say to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So he walks in and says, it's not going to rain anymore unless I say, see ya. That's it. 
That's it, right? And Ahab's like, what? And it stops raining. It doesn't rain for years and years. And Ahab searches for Elijah. Searches every kingdom. Searches every part of the nation. He's hiding out in the wilderness somewhere, right? God's taking care of him, feeding him with birds, all kinds of stuff. Elijah basically just confronted Ahab's sin. And he shows him who's boss. And it's not Elisha. He says, by the way, um, all this false worship you're doing, it actually matters. So it's stopping raining now. And God did that. See you later. Second time, he confronts Ahab. I think the first time he's really basically confronting his loyalty to God. But now he confronts his idolatry. And so he's hiding out. Eventually God's like, all right, go show yourself to Ahab now. And so he goes, and everyone's scared to bring Elijah to Ahab. No one wants to bring him. He shows up like, tell your master that Elijah's uh, coming. They're like, no, I'm not telling him that. You know he's been searching for you? He's like, he's going to kill me. And eventually he goes before Ahab. Here's what he says to him in 1 Kings 18. When Ahab saw Elijah, okay, so this is a guy, last time he saw Elijah, he's like, not going to rain until I say. See you later. So he's been looking for him. Ahab said to him, is it you, troubler of Israel? We got no water because of you. We got no crops because of you. Everyone's suffering because of you. And he answered, love this. I always wonder if he yelled it, or if he whispered it, or if he said it kind of snarky. Like, how do you say it? Like, I have not troubled Israel. But you have. And your father's house, because why? You have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. he says, now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and 450 prophets of Baal. They had a few. And the four prophets of Asherah. 850 prophets. He had built an entire religion. And where do they eat? They eat at Jezebel's table. Ahab is embracing. I mean, they are tight-knit group, cult awesome, worshiping Satan clan. Okay? So what does Elijah do? Perhaps you know the story. He's like, let's go gather on a mountain. And let's go have a contest. And so I want you and your prophets, go and make a fire. Well, don't light it on fire. Make like a sacrifice and then call to your gods and have them consume the sacrifice. See if it will light up. They're like, dang, no problem. We'll show whose God is God. It's like, okay. So they start. They start the little worship dance or whatever they're doing, right? It was weird because Elijah starts making fun of it. It's rad. He's like, well, maybe your God's sleeping. Like, read it. It's hilarious. He's like, maybe your God's going to the bathroom right now. He says that. He's just like mocking them. And they're like, no, no, I don't know, maybe. And so they start like cutting themselves and like, oh, bleeding everywhere. And they're like, ah. And he's like, this is just stupid. All right, you guys are done. 
And he walks up, and then he has them pour water all over the sacrifice. It's like so much water is like floating around the sacrifice. He's like, God, show him who's God. And it consumes in fire. And they're all like, oh, my. And he's like, that's right. And then, <laughs> and then what does he do? He kills all the prophets. He says, Elijah slaughtered the prophets. Elijah's a bad you know what, right? He ain't messing around. But he's confronting their idolatry. Saying, you're not worshiping God. Ridiculous. He danced around it. He didn't like, you know, I hope they're not offended by this. He's like, I'm going to kill you. Because I've shown you what you've done. Elijah hides after that. Because Jezebel finds out. And she's going to kill him. So he hides. See, the prophets in the Old Testament, most of them, they weren't liked. And everyone tried to kill him. And rarely did they go to the extremes that Elijah did where they would slaughter like that, but often, I mean, they did sometimes. But that's not why they'd be killed. It's just they confronted sin. And the last time Elijah did it, Ahab's laying around depressed. Why? Because he wants this guy's field next to his house. He says he wants to create a vegetable garden. And he goes to the guy and he says, will you give me your field so I can make a vegetable garden? The guy's like, no, I'm not selling it to you. It's my field. So he goes back and he cries. And he's like, I want to Okay. And Jezebel's like, what's wrong? He's like, I want the field. He won't sell it to me. She's like, why don't you just go rest? And then Jezebel basically has men lie, brings this guy up in charges, brings false witnesses in, and has this guy killed so they can take his land. And wakes up Ahab. I took care of it, honey. You can have the land now. How'd it happen? It's not important. It's not important. So Elijah comes out of hiding. Here's what he says to him. The word of the, then the word of the Lord, right? This isn't just Elijah. This is in 1 Kings 21. It's one of the last confrontations you see with Elijah. Elijah's not making this stuff up. This isn't Elijah's ideas. It says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who's in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth. That's the vineyard of the guy. Where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, shall dog lick up your blood. You're not messing around. That's who Elijah was. Elijah condemns him. Basically, you think about the rest of the commandments. Murder. Stealing. I mean, coveting. Lying. It 
So you see, Ahab is a great example of a Israelite, a lead Israelite, who had forgotten God's law. And by forgotten, I don't mean just failed to remember it. Oh, we're not supposed to murder. I wish I would have had that on my wall. I wouldn't have done that. Oh, I wasn't supposed to hire 850 false prophets. Wish I would have known. He knew. He had turned from loving God and began to love other things, and so he ended up destroying those that he loved, which is what happens when you disobey the Ten Commandments, especially the first one. You start to love someone else other than God, you will eventually destroy your family, your marriage, your community. So what is the lesson we learn? Well, that's the first one. The other one is to remember that when you call people to remember God's commandments, which is exactly what Elijah did, when you call people to repent of their sin, you are going to be called a lot of things. You're going to be called intolerant. You're going to be mocked and disliked and possibly even killed. But let's not forget that's what happened to Jesus. And so we're in pretty good company. God says that before, as we close it out here, the great and awesome day of the Lord, Elijah's going to show up. And now we know who Elijah is. So, okay. Elijah's coming. And what's he going to do? It says he's going to start turning hearts. He's going to start reversing the effects of sin. It's a mission of restoration and healing. Sin destroys our hearts and turns us away and against one another. Elijah shows up, and like all prophets, he points us to Christ, who gives us a new heart, and as a result, turns us toward and for each other. And how is Elijah going to accomplish this? Well, how did Elijah accomplish this? It's the same old way that the old Elijah did. It's the same way that, guess what? Malachi did it. It's the same way that John the Baptist, who was the fulfillment, but we said last week prophecies are often fulfilled fully even more, But John the Baptist, without doubt, fulfilled that spirit of Elijah, and he did it the same old way Elijah did. As Jesus was coming, he called people to repent. And it's the same way, if you read in the book of Revelation, you'll read about Witnesses that will come, two in particular, many scholars, like I think one of them is going to beat Elijah because Elijah never died. He was taken up into heaven in a chariot, and you can read about that later. And so even at the end, two witnesses are going to come. Guess what? Believe in the same spirit of Elijah and do the exact same thing before the second coming of Jesus. And what is that? He is going to call people to repent. See, our problem in Our culture, your problem in your life right now, wherever you're feeling pressure, 
whether it be in your job or your marriage or some relationship, whether it be your fault or someone else's, wherever you're feeling that pressure, you need to understand something that's very important. Your problem is not sociological or biological or economical or psychological or any other logical except theological. That is the problem. The only solution, the only solution is not that they will do this or that they will change or this will be taken away or this will be given to me. Here's the solution. To humble yourself before a holy God. To turn from your sin, receive the forgiveness of Jesus and live for God. In the midst of difficulty, in the midst of what is inconvenient, in the midst of what is not enjoyable, live for God. All relationships will be healed when your one relationship with our God is restored through Jesus Christ. Know this. Before Jesus came, prophets called men to repent and to believe. When Jesus walked the earth, he called men to repent and to believe. After Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, his disciples, guess what they did? Called men to repent and to believe. Until Jesus comes again, men are called to repent and to believe in the same spirit of Elijah. And today, I have the privilege of being in that spirit for you. But you may have the privilege of being in that spirit for someone else. In your home, in your community, at your job, I don't know. We are called to remember the law because it shows us that God is good and that we are bad. It shows us that God wants a relationship with us, but His standard to have that is impossibly high. It cannot save us. Following those Ten Commandments cannot save you. Being good cannot save you. You're not going to make it. No matter how good you think you are, and the only point you have a comparison is other people, and they all stink too. So it's like, well, I stink less than you, but you still stink. It cannot save you, but what it can do is show you how desperately lost and sinful you are. And it can drive you to the cross. And so as God's voice today in Marysville, I plead with you to run to the cross. And it's not just for salvation because some of you are saved and you are just sitting in sin. And so I plead with you, stop managing your sin. Stop defending your sin. Stop hiding your sin. Stop minimizing your sin and stop justifying your sin and stop loving your sin and turn from it and receive the love and the forgiveness and the approval and the healing of our Lord Jesus freely. I was blown away by 
I've been crying a lot lately. I don't know what is wrong with me. But I have just been, um, I was wrecked this week in a way that um, maybe at some point I will share, but God humbled me. And I was blown away by watching Billy Graham. Not because of what he said, but because of what he has said for many years. That man is going to die at some point, maybe sooner, maybe later, who knows, pretty old. But he's going to be characterized by one thing. The guy preached Jesus. And if you listen to his sermons, they sound just like Peter's sermons in the book of Acts. Turn from your sin and receive the grace of Jesus. Simple, plain, very Elijah-esque. Some will be a little more offensive, some less. But the spirit of what he says is I pray the spirit that characterizes my life when I'm 695. What he said was that repentance is not just a call to change, or I should say it is a call to change, and the call to believe is actually a command to commit. And when John, the Baptist, who people said, oh, this is the Elijah we're waiting for, you should read how he preached. He called people to repent. He said, turn from your sins, repent. Turn, And people said, okay, okay. What do we do then? And what did he say? He said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He said, in answer to them, in Luke 3, I believe it is, very plain, and what you see is a return back to a fulfillment of the commandments. Motivation's very different. We're not motivated to, if I don't obey those, I'm not going to be saved. That is not why we obey. We obey because we are saved and we are accepted and we are loved. Therefore, I want to have my Father delight in me. And I want to delight in Him. And it is a delight because the laws of God are not burdensome. And He says, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came and baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more money than you're authorized to do. Stop stealing. Soldiers also asked him, soldiers, right? They're little Jewish soldiers, Romans. What are we going to do? He said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. And be content with your wages. Repentance is more than an idea. Humility is more than a concept. Genuine love for God leads you to action. There is no doubt that Elijah loved God because guess what? He was a man of action. There is no doubt that John loved God. He was a man of action. There is no doubt that Jesus Christ loved God. He was a man of action. So let there be no doubt that you love God and do something. Don't talk about confession. Don't talk about being humble. Do something. Stop hiding your sin and start confessing it. Stop denying and start admitting. Stop hating people and start loving them. Stop resenting and start forgiving. Stop fighting and start helping. Stop robbing and start giving. Stop taking and start serving. Stop criticizing 
and start encouraging. Stop wallowing and start rejoicing. Humble yourself. I plead with you to humble yourself because that is where there is joy. As painful as it looks like right now, get on your knees. Let Jesus destroy the sin that's destroyed you right now because guess what? The last word of Malachi's destruction, he's going to destroy it one day. Let him destroy it now. Let him destroy it now. If you're feeling the spirit move in your heart, I pray that you will not leave here today without talking to Chris, Randy, Nate, one of the pastors. Pray with them. Let them pray with you. I haven't said any name, and so if your heart is tickling, that's the Lord. Amen.